singing a lot of places on Sunday mornings, but when we're not, this has become our, our home church. So, uh, yeah, we love you, and uh, we're part of you, and so you're going to get to see our warts and all and kind of get to know us. And uh, have you ever, do you have those areas of your life where um, there's like an inordinate response, uh, maybe with your spouse when they're driving? You know, maybe other times, you know, there's just some part of you that you, you have some sort of response and you're thinking, where did that come from? Anybody ever have that? Uh, you know, or, or like when Paul said, uh, you know, I, I want to do what's right, but I can't seem to do what's right. And there's something down inside that's warring down in the flesh. Uh, we're going to talk about shame and the soul of shame. This is a, a series on the prosperous soul and there's a great book out recently called The Soul of Shame. It's by a Christian psychiatrist. He's an uh, uh, interpersonal neurobiologist. Uh, that's a field of study now that uh, is both a secular and, and very strongly uh, influenced by Christians as well that are studying because as they're getting into the brain and beginning to understand how the brain functions, uh, they're discovering, uh, as we're not surprised, that so much of what they discover, the Bible has the answers for. And so... Uh, to kind of introduce this, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, Mindy and I, we love to, uh, to bicycle. So some Sunday mornings that we're here, you may see us wearing, uh, unfortunately, spandex. Uh, because we love to ride up GMR. And so we've been dreaming, like, wouldn't it be fun on Sunday morning to ride from our house up GMR and then get back here in time for church, you know, come down from GMR and just come in here all sweaty and let you guys, you know, like smell us and, you know, and see if you still love us anyway, just to discover, is this really our church? So uh, what happened uh, a couple of years ago, we decided to do this ride called the, the um, Triple Bypass. And so, yeah, you either live or die, you know, you either get a Triple Bypass or you make it, you know. And so it, it's, it starts in Denver uh, area in Evergreen, and you ride up, uh, let's see, the first mountain is called... Uh, it used to be called Squaw Pass. I think they've changed the name now to a, a more appropriate Juniper Pass. Yeah. And so uh, you go up Juniper Pass, which is 11,600, I think, something like that. Uh, then you come back down to about 7,000. Then you go back up over Loveland Pass, which is 11,990. So right at 12,000. Uh, then you come back down, and you, then you go up uh, kind of a little pass called Swan. Uh, Swan. And then you go up a really big pass, the triple one, the third one, uh, which is uh, the Vail Pass, which is 10,500 feet up. Uh, all this on your bicycle. And then you go down to, uh, to Avon. And in the end, you've ridden 130 miles, around 120, 130, depending on how they route you. And uh, you've gone about 10 or 11,000 feet of up. So uh, Mindy and I are 60 this year, so we're crazy. You know, we wanted to do that at age 58. So a couple of years ago, we trained for it, we did it. So uh, I like to ride behind Mindy because I learned that you, as a man, if you want your wife to ride with you, uh, there's a thing called half-wheeling. And if you ride a little bit ahead of them, they will stop riding with you. But if you always ride a little bit behind them, they will ride with you. And so I always ride behind her and kind of, you know, and then I kind of feel like I'm, I'm shepherding and caring for her, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm protecting. So whatever we're riding, I'm, you know, if, if somebody's going to plow into us, they're going to plow into me first, you know, and she's going to survive 
and I'll lay down my life for her. So I just have this idea. I'm going to always be behind her, you know, watching her, caring for her. She probably doesn't feel that way at all. She, you know, but that's what I feel. I feel like I'm being this good husband, sort of, you know, encouraging her. And so, so we're riding, and we get to the, uh, to the really big pass, 11,990 Loveland. We, we go up, and uh, we get to the top. And I'm a little bit more of a daredevil. And so sometimes on GMR, she'll just say to me when we get to the top, she'll go, have fun, honey. Just take off and wait for me at some point. And I just fly down, you know, and just see if I can, you know, survive. And uh, the, the idea is, you know, I could have died, but I didn't. So uh, I don't know why men are like that, you know. If you ever want to, men, you know, the way men bond is if we could have died together, we are forever friends. It's just the way it is. So uh, I was up, we were at the top of Loveland Pass, and I was taking some pictures. It's pretty glorious up there. There's still snow. This was in July, middle of July. There was still snow around us up there. It was so high. And uh, she said, I'm going to take off because she knows I like to go to faster down. So she thought, I'm going to get ahead of him so he, I don't feel like I'm holding him back because that's, I think, what she feels like sometimes that when she, because she's out front of me, that maybe she's holding me back. So I said, okay, go ahead. I'll catch you. So then I realized, oh, gosh, she's gotten several switchbacks down the mountain. I better take off. So I stuck my phone in my little case on my handlebar uh, along with a battery that I had, an extra battery that day. I, I was on my phone tracking. Uh, I had uh, an app that about five of our uh, family members could track where we were. They could see on the map where we were at any given moment. So that was in there. Uh, on That app was open and going. And uh, I, I hop on. I take off. We're heading down the mountain. And I'm... Flying down those switchbacks. I mean, I'm passing people. I am, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong on whatever drugs he was on. You know, I am really flying. So, uh, and then I start to see her. I think, oh, she's only two switchbacks down. I can see her. I'm going to catch her. This is going to be so much fun, you know. And all of a sudden, bam, I felt something hit my leg. Pow, 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 pow. I turned around and I saw my phone and my battery sliding down the road. And, and I'm going probably about 50 miles an hour at that point. And so my phone was going 50 miles an hour off the cliff. Telling all our loved ones that I had just gone off a cliff. Yeah. So I turn around and I go back to see if I I, I climb down the cliff and I'm looking for it. And I find the battery, but I can never find the phone. Everybody's stopping and going, are you okay? Because they see me down the cliff. They're thinking... Should we call the ambulance? Do we need a you know, medevac or what? And so I realized I've got to just get back on my bike and go. And so that phone is still up there somewhere. And uh, I uh, got back on the bike, and I take off. And I, I, now Mindy's who knows where, how far ahead she is. At this point. It's really hard to catch somebody even, you know, because she's probably going 40 miles an hour. And so I'm now going 55. I'm trying to get up to 60 or whatever. I'm just trying to go as fast. I mean, I've never gone faster in my life. There's a part of me that's like motivated, but there's another part of me that is angry. I began to feel like, I, why did she not stop? Has she not realized I'm not, you know, behind her anymore? And as we go mile after mile after mile, I'm thinking, she doesn't care. Actually, in my head, the words were probably a little bit more spicy than that. She doesn't give up. I mean, I'm starting to, like, my brain is going places it shouldn't go. I can't believe, I, I follow her all day. I take care of her. I watch her. And now she could care less whether I'm even with her. And suddenly I'm feeling all this anger and uh, this feeling of, uh, of 
frustration. And I get down, the, down to the bottom of the mountain and uh, to an area where all the, everybody's pulling off and going to the restroom and things. And, and there's just thousands. There were 3,000 of us riding that day. And so I'm looking, and I'm, I'm looking at all the women. She's lined up at the bathroom stalls, and I'm going, where is she? And I think she can't text me. She can't, you know, if she checks on her phone, she'll see that I've gone off the cliff. But apparently she doesn't even care because she never did stop and wait, you know. So uh, I'm really, you know. So finally I see somebody with a phone. I stop and I say, can I borrow your phone? And I, and I call, and I don't realize all that's in there until she answers the phone. Uh, hello? Because it's somebody else's number, you know. And I go, sorry to say this in church, but it's the accurate words I said. I said, where the hell are you? And she goes, oh, I'm going. You know, she was so proud. She was like, I was, she thought I, she was really getting, staying ahead so that I wouldn't have to go slow. She thought she was giving me this great gift, but that's not how I was experiencing it. And I, I hang up, and the lady looks at me, and she goes, you're going to have an interesting night. I, I wanted to say, oh, no, 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 no worry. And by the way, I'm a pastor. You know, and just, <laughs> you, know, you know, we had this one friend who took a picture of She happened to live, she lives near that little spot. And when I rode by, she took a picture of me. And the picture is, I look like this angry, mad, you know, just look on my face. And I'm thinking, whoa, something's going. So there was this inordinate response. I finally catch up with her, and, and um, you know, she's so apologetic. She's just, you know, filled with shame. You know, she's feeling like, you know, I'm so sorry. I thought I was doing, you know, I, I was trying to, I didn't mean to leave you behind, and I, I didn't mean to make you feel like, you know, uh, I didn't care that you might have gone off the cliff or, you know, all that. And I, I'm like, and I'm just, you know. So then for about two or three weeks, I kept trying to figure out what was that. And uh, we'd be sitting on the back porch uh, where we do our Bible studies. And I'd say, can we talk about that, that mountain experience again? And she'd go, oh, no, I think I'm done. I just can't, I don't want to talk. I go, no, no. She'd go, I, I told you I'm sorry. I told you a thousand times. I said, it's, it's not about you. I said, it's, it's not your, it's me. There's something wrong in me. There's something in me. Why did I get so angry? Why was I so frustrated? It took about a couple of weeks. And, uh, and then one day I began to say, you know, I, I felt abandoned. I felt like you didn't care. I said, you know, I, I think back. Uh, my parents divorced and uh, grew up in a home where I started working when I was about 12. And uh, before long, I was helping to pay my, you know, to live where I lived. And I, I really was uh, abandoned, not on purpose, but my mom was working three jobs and and there was this abandonment that happened in my life. And so I had this, I had this deep feeling of abandonment that could come up really easily. And I'd never addressed it. I'd never seen it. I'd never noticed it. And uh, But as I began to talk to her about it, and we began to talk it through and kind of pray it through, the crazy thing was it, it, it sort of diminished. It dissolved. It no longer was an area where these inordinate responses would flow out of, and I didn't even know where they were coming from. Any of y'all ever have those inordinate responses? Anybody else? Abandonment, fear, blame, 
we're going to talk about where that comes from. It, it all flows from what's called shame. And shame is, uh, I think I, I put a, a definition up there. Shame is that painful feeling when I feel less than, humiliated or embarrassed, or that something is wrong or defective in me, or I'm not enough. In fact, that's almost like the ultimate description of what is shame. I'm not enough. I'm in danger of being rejected or abandoned. In the garden, uh, we'll go ahead and, and look kind of where the genesis of this was. In the garden, there was, you know, Adam and Eve, they're living, you know, in relationship with God and everything looks so great. And Satan was the Subtle. He had an ability to to trick. He was super subtle. And so he inserts a bacterium into the earth. Because God called us, he called Adam and Eve to come along, and he gave them the dominion mandate, you know, be fruitful, multiply. They were naked and without shame. It's interesting that that's the way the Bible would describe what the Garden of Eden looked like right? Naked. I mean, you would think they they were naked, and there were a lot of emotions. They could have said they were naked and like super happy. They were naked and very fulfilled. They were naked and felt really loved. They were naked. You know, there's so many different things that could be used to describe, but what was described as the the perfect situation was they were naked and were without shame. So it's kind of like a theme of what's about to happen. And the enemy comes along And he begins to put doubt into the heart of Eve. Did God really say? And doubt, you know, is that opposite of leaning upon the Lord and trusting in him. Doubt's when we begin to go, I I don't know if he'll hold me up. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if he'll abandon me. I don't know. In fact... He lets me be exposed to this serpent, so I don't know if I can really trust him. It's like when Peter uh, was with Jesus, you know, just before the cross, and he says, Satan has asked to sift you. And I would think the answer would be, you you told him no, right? And Jesus said, no, I I prayed that you'll, you'll make it, and then you'll strengthen your brothers. What's that all about? Well, There's that feeling, I'm sure Peter had at that moment, of abandonment. And Eve was feeling that abandonment. And she was feeling that sense of, I don't know if I'm enough. And she says, look, I mean, Satan says to him, look, if you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. You won't need him anymore in a sense. You won't have to have him. You'll have everything he has. You'll You'll be just like him. Oh. It's like that coping mechanism that tells you, if I can get that, I feel better. You know, we all have those coping mechanisms. They flow out of shame where we don't feel like we're enough, you know, and and what is it that makes me feel better? Okay, well, I feel like if I had that fruit, oh, then I'd be enough. So her shame began to tempt her. The fact that she thought, maybe I'm not enough. Maybe I could be abandoned. Maybe I won't be protected. I just don't know. But if I can get eat this tree, then I'm going to, I'll have everything God has, so then I'm going to be okay. And so isolation or beginning to think about uh, leaning upon self is sort of the genesis of that. 
We're not trusting in God, we're trusting in self. And usually we can find in shame that there's that sense of looking for our own answer instead of relying on the answer that's been given. Thinking, I just don't know if that answer's enough, so I better take care of this myself. And so shame entered the world. We understand what happened. What, what, uh, it, it, shame begets more shame, right? What happens? Oh, man, now you really see the shame. All of a sudden, they start showing shame. Adam, it was that woman that you gave me. You know, he starts to blame, and flowing out of shame is often blame, because I've got to somehow prove I'm right, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm more than enough. You're the one that's not enough, because you gave me her, and she led me into this, and so it's kind of your fault and her fault and not my fault because I'm more than enough, you know. And we begin to blame others. We begin to hide. Adam, where are you? I don't think God didn't know where he was geographically. I think what he was doing was he was asking, you know, where he was internally. Where are you? What's happened? And it wasn't that he didn't even know that. He wanted Adam to recognize walked away from intimate fellowship with me. You were designed to be loved with an ever, never-ending covenant love. And you've chosen, you've chosen to go another direction. So it's almost like there's a, you know, God came along and, and there's the universe. I love that she said earlier, you know, we were called in the dominion mandate, mandate to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, you know, we were called to, in a sense, co-create with God. He began the creation, then he creates man and woman, and then he says, okay, now co-create with me. I want you to, to take some dominion under me, and together we're going we're gonna to create beauty, and we're going to create goodness, and we're going to fill this earth with beauty and goodness. There's already a lot of beauty and goodness to start with, and now let's just dream up what other kinds of beauty and goodness we could create together. That's the mandate. By the way, that's still the mandate. We're still creators, co-creators with God. We're assigned still to be creators of beauty and goodness. But the enemy comes along and inserts a bacterium into the system called shame. And this bacterium begins to multiply and spread. And it spreads throughout. I mean, it spreads so much uh, in, in the book, The Soul of Shame, uh, by Kurt Thompson. He talks about learning to take a three-by-five card and just uh, don't uh, diagnose your shame too much because you'll begin to feel ashamed about all your shames. But he said, but if you can just begin to notate each day how many times shame is affecting your life. I mean, I've sometimes seen, like, in, in a period, in a Christian home of pastors, I can notice sometimes in, in a 30-minute period, six, eight, ten times, shame will insert itself through something someone says, through a response someone gives. It doesn't have to be, like, a cruel one or a bad one. It's just something like, you know, just the way something's said with a, uh, you know, judgmentalism. Let, let me name some of the ways that shame sort of infects us. Um, Just see if any of these relate. Perfectionism. Our need 
to have order and organization and, and, and to look perfect and to have everything perfect so, so then we won't feel any shame, right? Because we're perfect. And how's that work for you? Because, you know, when you're perfectionism, you just like never, I'm ashamed all the time. I got it, but I'm going to get it just right. I'm going to get it 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 right. You know, that grammar wasn't right. That wasn't right. That wasn't right. You know, and so that begins to insert pleasing. It's our attempt to gain acceptance and affection by helping, pleasing, rescuing, uh, flattering. Uh, we lose sight of our own needs, and we're just you know, driven by being a people pleaser. There's a, there's a great book that we give to pastors called People Pleasing Pastors because it's a, it's a really danger for pastors. This idea that we just get driven by trying to, I don't want any criticism. I don't want anybody to look down on me. I don't want anybody to tell me I'm not enough. I don't want anybody to tell me this church isn't enough. I don't want anybody to show me that we're not doing enough, that we're not reaching the city enough, that we're not you know, being community enough, that we're not enough, 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 enough. So I'll just please, 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 please. It's all shame. It's shame-based leadership. It's shame-based church. Can you see how quickly this bacterium is infecting us all the time? There's hyperachieving. Some of us think, well, if I can just accomplish this and accomplish that, and I can drive this car, and I can live in this house, and I can be in this thing, and I can have this career uh, award, and if I can get this Oscar, and I can get that, you know, uh, you know, if I can make A's, if I can make A pluses, if I can be the, you know, the there's nothing wrong with aspirations and excellence, and I mean, God calls us to that. But when we're driven by that, that's usually at its root shame. It's just driving us. That one more thing, if I could just get rid of this car and have that car, everyone will respect me now. They'll think I'm more than enough. They'll think I've got it together. Am I the only one that deals with this stuff? Uh, the victim mentality. That's an emotional and temperamental style to, gain, uh, style to gain attention and affection. A focus on how you've been martyred. Well, I'm not enough, but that's because you would have no idea what's been done to me. I mean, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And so, so you need to have mercy on me that I'm not enough because I'm not But it's being driven by I'm not enough, I'm not enough, I'm not enough. Hyper-rational. Some people think, well, I, I'll just get rid of these feelings by being so ra- Everything I do is just going to be you know, super rational, super, you know, all by thought. Uh, hyper-vigilance. The worry that something's going to go wrong. Something's going to go wrong. You hear a loud voice. Oh, you know. You hear the siren. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. My husband's out there driving right now. He went to the store. He's probably dying. He's probably on an ambulance right now. And just this vigilance that begins to worry. I'm not enough. What would I do? What would I do? What would I do without it? Does this make sense? Restlessness. Controller. We try to control. control uh, we try to avoid. Uh, we, we, we take up drinking. We take up drugs. We take up sexual addictions. We... We do other stuff to try to feed. We, if I get some more chocolate, more chocolate, more, I mean, chocolate's good for you. It's a health food, but more, 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 you know. And there's that feeling like if I can just fill this somehow, then I'm going to be more than enough, or at least I won't think about how I'm not enough. How many of you think any of those coping mechanisms are going to be the solution to shame? And yet, we're driven to those things. It affects our life. We blame, we avoid, we use all kinds of coping mechanisms. I have some good news for you. You ready for some good news? All right. <laughs> There's some really good news. 
we see the insertion of the kingdom where the antidote to shame, which began, God prophesies it and says, he's going to crush Satan. And we see that antidote begin. And where does the kingdom begin to insert itself again? When would you say that suddenly the kingdom has arrived or begins to arrive in a way that you go, wow, there, there's the change, there's the antidote, there's the answer to shame. Where would you say that was? Jesus, and what part of, when do we see the start of Jesus' ministry? His baptism, exactly, let's go there. So his baptism. Matthew uh, 3.17, this is at the baptism of Jesus. And this is like the ultimate antidote to shame. He comes up out of the water. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he was wondering, I wonder if I'm enough. We don't know how much he knew, uh, how much he was emptied. The Bible talks about a ketos- uh, the uh, kenosis, the emptying of, of all of his heavenly capabilities. He humbled himself and became like us. And so now he's going to step into his ministry. I don't know. I don't know how much he was dealing with shame. I don't know how much the enemy tried to throw shame. We do know that if you look at the three temptations, they are all attempts to resurrect shame. And they happen right after this. He goes into the baptism. He comes up. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son that I love. In him I'm well Said, you ever heard that word? Said, you have to kind of say it to the person next to him, next to you, without spitting on them. Said, said. It's the Hebrew word that's kind of like the uh, like the Greek word agape, that you know is a version of love, but it's a little bit different. It's a Hebrew word that's kind of foundational before we get the word agape, uh, and it's a word that means uh, loving kindness. It's often interpreted or uh, his covenant love. Uh, it's used very many times in the Old Testament to describe the love of God, but it's a kind of love that is uh, irregardless of you. It's the kind of love we have for our children and grandchildren. We, in a human form, we get almost there. I have a, I have a mentally ill son that, you know, at the, at the moment, he, he thinks he's God, and he has delusions, and there's lots of struggle. I, I, you know, I've, we have seven children between us, and, um, but, but one of my sons has some real challenges to live in reality. And uh, I don't know what it is as a dad, because I think I love him the most. I, mean, I love my daughter that went to Princeton and got her PhD, and she's a professor. I love my, my son that works in the inner city of Memphis. and I, you know, I've, I have kids that are doing a great and amazing things, but my crazy son that calls me up and says, Dad, hey, I need you to get ready because uh, when, when my dream comes true and I'm God, he said, I'm going to need you to help fix the church, okay? And I go, okay, son. A little tiny taste of chesed. 
when you, how many of y'all have children or grandchildren? All right. How many of you love them even though they're not perfect? Have they ever been perfect? Are they ever going to be perfect? No. Do you just love them because you love them because you love them? And nothing they do can ever make you love them more, and nothing they do can ever make you love them less. You might not like them at times, but you love them with a, with a chesed, a, a, a covenant love. A, I will always be your dad. And no matter what happens, someday, if, if we are ever broken in relationship, I will be the dad that's watching for you and will run to embrace you. That dad that grabbed the prodigal son. That's our dad. So in Christ, as we come back, when we come in Christ, the good news, the gospel is, we can be hidden in Christ. And then here's what God says about you. You are my loved child. And I am so well pleased in who you are. You are more than enough. In me, you are more than enough. You never need another thing. You are more than enough just where you are. There is nothing you could ever do where I'll ever love you more. There's nothing you could ever do where I'd ever love you less. And whether you ever want to be better or not better, I will always love you just as much. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. The same thing the Father's saying to the Son when we're hidden in the Son, when the cross is covering our sins, and it enables the Father to embrace us as the Son. It's an exchange life, it's crazy. It's amazing. It's justification. It's just as if I'd never sinned. And so that is the antidote to shame. That when the enemy comes and says, you're not good enough. I'm loved. You made another mistake. I'm loved. You don't don't measure up. God told me I measure up. He said, I'm his beloved son, and he's taking pleasure in me. He's excited about me. He can't wait to be with me. He loves me. Get out of here, devil. I, what do you tell You can't say anything to me. I'm in the cross. He looks at me, and I am fully accepted. I'm, his loving kindness is more than enough. He has good things for me. He works it all together for good, as we sang in that song earlier. How do we go from, so, so we had the insertion of the bacterium that tried to destroy the kingdom. But then we have the insertion now of the antidote, the antibiotic that's destroying shame every day. How do we enter into that? How do we go from isolation and to begin to live in that unconditional love. The next one that we're going to look at is the answer. Vulnerability. Vulnerability. We have to lean into our shame. 
Instead of, because what we want to do is what Adam and Eve did. We want to hide, put the fig leaves on, pretend, act like, blame, blame shift, you know. But what God wants us to do is just lean in and say, tell our story. Let his story begin to shape our story. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, since we have a great cloud of witnesses looking, uh, and he goes on to say, let me, let me go ahead and read you the whole part there. I, I took some of it out. Therefore, since we have, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And uh, the researchers are discovering, and, and we already know this from Scripture, that really all of our sin kind of flows out of shame. It all flows out of back at the garden and what happened there. And the, and the beginning of shame and the beginning of, of this brokenness where we're not enough, and we don't trust God, and we're afraid we're going to be abandoned. And so we do all kinds of human means to try to solve that. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising or scorning what? The shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The most shameful thing that could happen at the time that Jesus came into the earth was to be hung on a cross. It was reserved for the most shameful of sinners, the most shameful, the most abhorrent, the most, if you wanted to uh, embarrass family, okay, strip them of all their clothes. I mean, we can't even paint the cross like that, right? We've like, got to cover him up. I mean, okay. But he's standing up there probably fully naked on the cross. Nothing covered, completely shamed, and he chose that shame. He leaned into his shame. He leaned into the, the shaming because he knew that the love of the Father was more than enough. He knew that he could lean into all the shame, not just his shame. He was leaning into your shame and my shame and all the shame that the earth could ever have, all the shame of all the sins that could ever be committed, all the embarrassment, all the humiliation, all the, all the things we'd want to hide from, lie about, uh, cover up, not tell, not have any people know about it, uh, you know, be embarrassed for anyone to ever see or to be displayed or not ever let the light come upon. He had all that shame in his soul at that moment. He leaned into his shame. And took on him all the punishment, all the humiliation, so that we could know that we're loved. We could know that that's already been taken care of. It's cleansed. It's gone. Any price that was owed, it's been paid. And so we scorn the shame. We, we remove the shame. We diminish the shame. Guess what? Guess what the opposite of shame is? What the, these neurobiologists that are studying the brain and they start realizing, you know, how shame works. And shame's very funny uh, about some of the things it does. One of the things it does is it doesn't let your brain fully. Uh, when you have experiences, they tetris and sort of settle into uh, 
workable, good parts of your life. But if you some, have some area like I did growing up where my mom sort of abandoned me, not, not, not really wanting to, but just trying to you know, provide for us. Uh, I never saw her. She didn't input my life. And I felt abandoned as a young man. And I, I just was all alone. And I, I went into, uh, there were three years of my life in high school that I smoked pot from morning to night. I mean, literally just was high because I was looking for coping mechanisms to fill my shame and emptiness and my feeling of abandonment. And I went from a straight-A student to a 1.6 GPA in high school. And, I, and Mindy graduated from that same high school uh, in the top 10. I graduated 566th in that class. Um, so there were all kinds of coping stuff going on because of that shame. All kinds of brokenness. But at some point, the gospel came along. My younger brother shared it with me. I began to realize that I was loved. I began to realize that I was called to to co-create beauty and goodness with him. I began to realize that with him, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay, I want you to go to college. Okay, I'll go to college with you. College is for everyone. That's what you wanted me to do in co-creating with him, okay? Uh, What do you want me to study? Okay, so then I studied that. Well, how do you want me to do in school? Okay, well, I'll do that. And what I found was everything he was asking me to do, he was also making me more than enough to do them. And things he didn't want me to do, I didn't, if I don't have to be. You know, I don't have to be everybody. I don't have to be everything. We're all, only the body of Christ together is everybody and everything, right? You just have to be who God made you to be. So, you know, right now my son's being who he's meant to be. And I don't, you know, I'm praying for his healing and I'm praying. But what, even whether God ever heals him further on this earth or only in heaven, uh, right now my son is, is glorifying God to the degree he knows how to do. And, and living for him and creating, and he does. He really does create beauty and goodness every day of his life. He really does. The most amazing way. You're more than enough. The joy that's set before you. The opposite of shame is joy. So what are those areas of life that don't produce shame, but what are those areas of life right now that produce joy for you? Like, where is it that when you step into that, you feel the joy of the Lord? Remember the, the story of uh, Eric Lytle, who's runner. You know, he runs in the Olympics. He's a missionary guy. And uh, so he won't run on Sunday. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen that movie, you need to see that sometimes. It's the best picture one year. And uh, his story... And he, he gets ready to run and, uh, in a race, and he skipped the Sunday race, so he didn't get a gold medal in the one he could have gotten it in. So he's running one that he's less likely to get a gold medal in. And the Jewish guy gives him, his competitor, that they're always competing, gives him a thing, and him who honors God, God, God will honor him. And uh, Eric Lado said, whenever I run, I feel the joy of the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. So when we're delighting in the Lord, and then we're delighting in every day, and we're living in delight instead of shame, the opposite of shame, and we're not worrying about shame, we're just leaning into shame, go, yeah, I got lots of it. I got lots of places I fall short, but God's more than enough. Yeah, I'd rather brag about my weaknesses because his, he's perfected in my weaknesses. Yeah, like Paul, I can say I just glory in my weaknesses because that's where Jesus is revealed. But where is that opposite side where I said, but this is what I have been called to do. Paul's case would be an apostle. In Eric Lytle's case, run. 
And so he runs, and they make a movie about it, and we're still talking about it. Here we are, glorifying God, because Eric Lytle ran. And he did that thing that he delighted in, where he felt God's presence, he felt God's goodness, and he helped to create goodness and beauty that we're still enjoying. Even though he's with the Lord now, that goodness and beauty is still like, like a... Any bacteria, you know, any bacterial thing is just still going out into the earth, producing the kingdom, producing life, producing love, producing joy. What are those delights in your life? One way we get there is this vulnerability. Uh, we, we get with pastors and we take them, we go on retreats together and we spend, you know, three, four days together. And we tell our stories. And what they found is, uh, now that there's uh, this neurobiology, this interpersonal neurobiology, and they're able to see much more in the brain than they ever were, just in the last 10 years, I mean, the brain has just kind of opened up to science in a way that never had before. And they now understand that our brain is wired through narrative. I can remember being frustrated that God didn't give us an owner's manual. The way I would want an owner's manual written. But it turns out that he gave us exactly the owner's manual that's full of stories and narratives. And it's all one story from the beginning to the end. It's just story after story. And it's poetry. And it turns out that poetry and stories are what rewire the brain. And so when we're in the Word of God and we're reading these stories and we're living in these stories and we're hearing these parables, our brain gets rewired. And when we start telling our story, God uses it to diminish shame and to replace it the grace of God, with the gospel, the good news. We, tell, we were telling, almost every time we're with pastors and we're telling our stories, we, we do a little covenant because you, you can't be vulnerable to anybody and everybody all the time, but you need to have somebody somewhere that you're vulnerable with. You need to have your community. And um, let's go ahead and go to the next slide. We'll kind of uh, kick over into that one. 1 Corinthians 12 uh, the boundary that begins to protect us from shame is the community. I'm so glad you're in church today. Not every church is a boundary against shame. The enemy comes into churches and creates a Phariseeism, a judgmentalism, a place where it becomes unsafe, a place where it's performance-driven, where you got to live up to, where you got to be, you know, try to find a way to look better, drive better, you know, sit better, sing better, you know, worship better, or whatever, you know, all those things. The enemy's always coming and trying to bring that shame thing in, but the kingdom's meant to be this. Paul wrote it this way, the eye cannot see to, to the hand, uh, say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker, like my son's, are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. Our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require. But God so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it. And there may be no division in the body, that the members may, uh, may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. And the body of Christ is meant to be this super safe place where people can lean into their shame. 
and they can be, it, let that stuff be rewired. Once I shared with Mindy, it wasn't your fault that you left me behind on that mountain. It was my fault because I've got something, something in my soul. Turns out it was shame. Turns out it was the fear of abandonment. It was the fear that I'm not enough. She really doesn't care. And she wasn't saying she didn't care. I was hearing, your wife is beautiful. Those other family members probably don't even care that you went off the cliff. They're probably thinking, hmm, life insurance. <laughs> All this stuff's going through my head. Where's that stuff coming from? The enemy of the body of Christ helps rewire that. They hear your worst story, and they say, I'm with you. I love you. We're in this together. You're loved. There's nothing you could tell me that would ever make me stop loving you, because I'm a little bit of a reflection of God. We'll figure this out together. We get with these pastors and we make a covenant together and we say, you know what, this is going to be a safe space to tell your story. Because what, what we've discovered is if, if pastors can tell their story in a safe space, a lot of the stuff that's driving them, that's not healthy, starts to fade away. And they start to flow out of a more healthy motivation. A motivation of love. A motivation of loving kindness, not people pleasing. Not drivenness. Not trying not to be criticized. Trying to live up to trying to be perfect, trying to whatever, you know. So in the area of pastors, but not just pastors, it's all of us. So every time we tell these, it's crazy. People say to us, I mean, we always are ready for this, and we warn people ahead, this will probably happen. It almost always does. Some, someone says, we're sitting there with this group of pastors, and sometimes they're as old as we are, and they look at us and they go, I don't know if I've ever been in this safe of a space. I need to tell you something that I've never told anyone. Not even my spouse. And we're all like, this is sacred ground. This is holy ground. There's something supernatural, holy happening. And the things we've heard, we sweep together. And we hug. And we cry. And we, and we attune to what's going on in their soul. And they tell us later, that forever has changed my life. We had a couple that uh, were pastors in, a number of years ago. We were doing one of these retreats, and, and they, you know, we did this. And they called us a year later, and they said, can you get that group together? Remember the group that we went together on that retreat? We went, okay. And we got them all together. They said, we have to have that group. We have no other group like that in our lives. You know, okay. So we get them together for breakfast in a private room, and, and they begin to share uh, how their son, who was a youth pastor, was coming out gay and wanted to get married to a man. He wanted to get married to a man. And they didn't know what to do. They're like, this is our son. This is our church. This is our youth group. What do we do? Where do we start? We couldn't tell anybody. We've just been harboring this in our own soul. We just feel ashamed. We feel afraid. We feel like we're not enough. We haven't been good enough parents. We haven't been good enough pastors. We're not, we don't know what. Ah! We just wept with them and we loved them. And we were the body of Christ together. We're like, you can count on us. We're going to figure this out together. 
We don't know exactly what the right answer is, but we will figure this out. We will love you through this. We'll walk with you in this. It's an insertion of the kingdom of God where the darkness has come in and inserted shame, an inserted thing that, that drives us into all kinds of things, and now the kingdom of God comes and inserts what? Unconditional love. Unconditional acceptance. Not performance mentality, but you just are loved because you were made by God. You could be... I was sitting uh, in a small group one time, and I'll close with this, and uh, we had this boy named Christian who was completely uh, unresponsive to life. He, he lived his whole life unresponsive. He was in a wheelchair. I loved him. I hugged him every Sunday when he came to church. I loved him so much. And uh, one day I was, I, was, I was in this, I'd only been a pastor for a couple of years at that time, a senior pastor, and I, I was feeling a lot of shame and a lot of, you know, I'm not living up to it and I'm not dreaming, my dreams aren't coming true and we're not reaching the community enough and all, you know, all these things. And I was sitting in this small group, and I look across the room at Christian, and the Lord said to me, do you love Christian? I said, I love that boy so much. I probably love him more than anybody in my church. He's like, yeah, he never criticizes me. He never, you know, he's just, he's such a beautiful, you know, reflection of you. And his parents loved him so much, and, and I loved his parents, and they're, they're amazing, and I still love them today. Christian's with the Lord now, but, uh, but at that moment, the Lord said, does Christian do anything for you? And I said, no, he just is. And the Lord said, that's how I think about you. Nothing you can do, you can't earn any more love than you currently have. And you can't remove any of the love you currently have. I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you, period. You are loved is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. So here's what you need to do. We've got to be vulnerable with one another. We've got to find those vulnerable places. We've got to find those safe spaces. And we've got to take the risk of leaning into our shame so it can be scorned and removed. We've got to, we've got to do that. We just have to. Uh, I've gotten where it's, it's kind of fun. We were with a group pastor not long ago, and I was telling my story, and many afterwards said, well, you never tell this one story about Josh, a certain part about Josh that was a very embarrassing moment for me. I said, I know, I know. So I said, hey, pastors, pastor, I know we're getting lunch right now, and I was the last person to tell the story before lunch. I said, my wife just pointed out that I leave out this one really place that I'm super ashamed. I said, can I just tell that to you while we're getting lunch together? They go, okay. And so I told the story. And they wept with me, and they laughed with me, and they, you know, and they smiled, and we all, and, and the crazy thing was, that was the summer, and now I've been able to tell that story over and over, and it was like this hidden spot that I wouldn't ever go there, and now it's like it's on display, who cares? Now I know I'm loved, it doesn't matter, now I can just talk about, it. oh, it's just, God loves you. So we got to be vulnerable, we've got to find those places of vulnerability, we've got to protect the vulnerable parts of the body. That means we who are hearing stories, we have to provide protection, care, honor to the dishonorable spots. When we hear the dishonorable thing, we just lean in with love. We don't judge. We don't condemn. We don't criticize. We love, we love, we love, okay? 
God can take care of any correction that needs to happen. We love, all right? We love. If they ask for advice, we can give it to them. But if they're not asking, we just love, love, love. That's what they really need. That's what will help bring the solution. That's what begins to unlock and release the kingdom. Father, I ask you to help this church, Lord, Mennonite Church, the church we go to, the church we're members of now. We want it to be like the healthiest church that we can possibly be. We want to be the safest space for people to get real and to get transformed. We want it to be a place where people know that they're loved, where we don't live trying to outperform each other, but we live in the place of loving each other. Help us, God. Help us to lean into our places of shame. Help us to accept one another where we are. Help us to encourage and put arms around one another. Lord, help us to insert that that opposite kingdom that says to people, you are loved. You are more than enough. You have a joyful future of delighting in the Lord and having the desires of your heart come forth and going out and creating goodness and beauty in ways that God designed you for. You don't have to do it like anyone else did, but you're just going to be, you're going to have the joy of living in displaying his goodness and his beauty in the earth in your own unique way. And I'm going to join you in that. Make us those kind of people. The worship team's going to come and lead us in a last song. And as, uh, as we do this, there's, uh, there's prayer ministry at the back. If you feel like you, uh, as you stand up and you want to just say, man, I need to like sh- lean into some shame right now. God's really been messing with me. Just go and share that right now. Go share and let somebody love on you. Let somebody just speak life into you. Let them speak acceptance. And so uh, that ministry is available as we worship. Holy Spirit, I pray even as we pass these trays and hold this bread, would you speak? Would you speak love and mercy and grace and compassion and value and kindness over every life this morning? In Jesus' name.
you're holding in your hand a piece of bread. It used to be a part of something bigger. A loaf that was baked, came out of the oven perfect. And then for this morning was broken. You're holding something broken in your hand. A representation of the body of Christ that was broken for your brokenness. That in his brokenness that Jesus brought wholeness to your soul. To every part of who you are. Jesus, we receive your restoration this morning. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that you were broken, that you chose to go to the cross for us. We give you praise as we receive this bread this morning. In Jesus' name. by, would you hold on to the cup and we'll receive together. was in the Garden of Eden where Satan talking to Eve shamed her and said you're not good enough the way you are you're lacking and if you eat that fruit you'll become like God and through that shame she took that first step of sin Sin entered the world, a broken and broke the world. And we have been stuck in a shame-sin cycle ever since. But Jesus. But Jesus. And His shed blood broke once and for all the power of sin 
and shame and death forever. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission. There is no pardoning of sin. And because we couldn't take that step for ourselves, because we couldn't fix our own brokenness, he did it for us by shedding his blood. And because he was the perfect sacrifice, never has to be done again. Because of his shed blood, we are able to remember that we are loved, that we are his children, and that we have value. When we stand together, as we receive, Father God, we thank you that you sent your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came willingly to a world that for the most part rejected you and ultimately beat you, robbed you of your life. But Jesus, you went to that cross shedding your blood knowing that because of your blood, that cycle would be broken in our lives. And so we give you praise this morning. Jesus, we thank you on the third day that you rose again. And you sealed the victory once and for all. And so we stand in this place with grateful hearts for what you have done what you are doing and what you will do in restoring our lives. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive together. Amen. Can we just lift praise to the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We can give him clap offering. Lift your voice if you would. Would you just speak praise out loud? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness, oh God. We give you praise in this place. We lift you on high. You are worthy, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, have a wonderful day. We hope to see you at the park after church today. Here in